Good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to be here with you. Thanks so much for joining us here. And if you have been with us these past couple of weeks, we've been in our Advent series entitled Songs of Hope, as the video just described for you. So welcome back for those of you who have been tuning in with us. Uh, The first couple of weeks, we looked at Zechariah's song, uh, the father of John the Baptist, and his wife's name was Elizabeth, and I'm highlighting that for you because this morning we're going to be diving into another song that's recorded right here in the Gospel according to Luke in chapter 1, and this time we're going to be looking at Mary's song. So if you have been walking with Jesus for a long time, you're probably familiar that there's a lot of Marys in the Bible, but the Mary that you might be most familiar with is Jesus' mother. And so that's the song that we're going to look at this morning. So I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to get to Mary's song, which starts in verse 46. But before we get to her song, I think it's important for us to situate her song in context so that we can really understand the significance of of what it is that she is saying and how she is praising God for what he is doing and what he has done. So we're actually going to start back in verse 26 of chapter 1 where Mary has an encounter with the angel Gabriel. And so we're going to dive right in this morning. So if you have those Bibles opened up, Luke 1, starting in verse 26, says this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, remember that's John the Baptist's mom, who is actually a relative of Mary, as we'll see. So she's six months pregnant. At this time, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in the region of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel said, went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to name him Jesus, or in Hebrew, that's Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And then she goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, and upon her arrival, Mary bursts into this song, starting in verse 46. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, what's amazing when we look at the Advent story, the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, we would think that his birth would arrive with pomp and circumstance, lights and sounds and music and jubilation, a pronouncement that everybody ought to be aware of. And yet what we find in the gospel accounts, the biographies of Jesus' life, is anything but the opposite. He comes in a humble manger scene amongst the animals, and he's laid in this bed of, of hay. And what we see is those closest to him, like Mary, celebrating, and the angels celebrating, but most of the world doesn't even know what's happening. You could say that he enters into the world in unimpressive ways, quite insignificant ways. And we see that in his birth. We also see that in his mother, Mary, whose song we're looking at this morning. See, Mary was rather unimpressive. Take her name, for example, Mary. It's just a very common name in this day and age. In fact, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find there are multiple Marys in the Bible. You could say uh, it would be like the equivalent of today if you had the name Joe. Uh, or, or if you're part of the Centerpoint family, um, it would be like if, if uh, you had the name Dave. If you're ever in doubt here, you don't know who you're talking to, and you're talking to a gentleman, just say Dave, and you'll get lots of responses. Hey, hey, hey. This is how common Mary's name would have been. So again, even in her name, there's nothing that marks her as significant, as impressive, that sets her apart. It's very common. And then we saw that the angel Gabriel was sent to Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Now, Nazareth doesn't mean much to us today, but Nazareth actually had quite the reputation in broader Israel. It was kind of viewed as backwoods. It was kind of viewed as uncultured. And it's interesting, uh, reading various things from, from historians, uh, there's actually this, this thread that says that uh, in the, these days that Jesus was born, that folks from Nazareth actually wouldn't be permitted to read public prayers. The men wouldn't have been able to read public prayers because of their accents. They were viewed as uncultured. It's interesting. And we see later in the Gospel of Matthew in particular that uh, Peter, who's also from the region of Galilee, not from the town of Nazareth, but from the region of Galilee, that uh, his accent gives him away. And so there's something particular here going on in this region of Galilee and then in Nazareth that it, it's, it's a bit uncultured. In fact, another one of the disciples named Nathaniel in John's gospel of chapter one, he, his friend Philip comes to him and says, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah, that means anointed one, the one that we've been waiting for for all of history to come and save us, the one that this passage is talking about. And he says, his name is Jesus and he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, seriously? What good can come from Nazareth? Right? So, so, it's not just Mary's name, it's also where she's from. There's nothing impressive about her, insignificant. And she even highlights for us in her song, in verse 48, she says that God's been mindful of her humble state. 
her humble state. You can also translate this, her lowly estate. So she's actually talking about her lot in life, her position from society's perspective that she acknowledges about her own self. Hey, there's actually nothing quite significant about me. There's actually nothing quite impressive about me. Now, laying that groundwork, I'm looking out today. You all look quite impressive to me. But can anybody relate to Mary? That you feel like, yeah, I'm actually kind of unimpressive. Like, I'm like an average Joe. And you can keep laughing at my bad name joke since my name's Joe. That's okay. Permission granted. You can laugh at that. So I'm, I'm actually, I feel quite, quite unimpressive. I feel quite insignificant, right? And, and here's, I think here's kind of why we feel that way. Because when we look around at society, right, particularly in the modern West, what we find is that uh, you are unimpressive and you are insignificant to the world Unless you have fame, you have wealth, you have power, you have position, you carry authority. You're a person who other people can look at and go, I want to be like that. Or you're a person who people look at and go, I need to talk to that guy or that gal because they can help me get somewhere. Right? Isn't that how broader society defines what is impressive, what is significant. We can relate to that, right? Now, what's interesting about that is that's actually quite an ambiguous, vague target that we are required to hit in order to be significant, be impressive, and be successful in society's eyes by society's ever-changing standard. And what's interesting is if we look at people who fit those categories that we would deem impressive and significant, oftentimes what we find is that they themselves still say Well, I got the thing that I was told to get. I got the thing that I wanted to get, but I'm still left empty on the inside. And what this does to us is immense. The pressure that it puts on us is immense. If you don't believe me, let's just start by looking at our students, our youth. What we see is that there's this expectation that not only are they crushing it academically, getting the A's, but now there's also this expectation that they're participating in sports and they're not just participating, they're actually excelling. And then they're supposed to do all these extracurricular activities and the parent's job is to essentially just drive them around to all of those different things that they have to do because they have to do all of those things in order to get into college and they gotta get into the good college in order to then get the good job and they gotta get the good job in order to get the, the money in order to get this, the success. And if, if, if you're still like, well, maybe, just look at rates of depression and anxiety in particular among youth and students today, and we see that reflected. And I think it's in large part because of this benchmark that's set up that actually isn't even attainable because we don't even know how to hit it in the first place, but we chase it. We go, okay, well, that's, that's just the youth, that's just students. But I think we all feel this, right? Then you come into young adulthood, and then there becomes this pressure on you, particularly in Christian circles, right? Like, when are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? Are you married yet? Are you, time's ticking. Are you going to have kids? Are you going to do that yet? And even if you're not married or you're not feeling like God actually is inviting you into that, maybe he's calling you into to singleness, there's still this immense pressure, whether you're in either camp, to get that career, to get that job, to get the money, to get the house, and on and on we go. It's the rat race of life. Because why? Because I need to be impressive. I need to be significant. I need to be known. I need to be accepted. I need to be loved. I need to be valued. These are all needs that we have, but we go about achieving them in the wrong way. And then we hit the middle of our lives from a human perspective. We call it the midlife crisis, right? Where all of a sudden people are going, oh my word, I've lived more than half of my life. 
what have I even done with it? What am I even doing with it? Like, can anybody relate to this? Like, what, what, am I, what have I accomplished? This nagging feeling of emptiness, and then we do all kinds of interesting decisions with that anxiety that bubbles up to the surface. And then for those perhaps who are uh, ending their careers, and they're coming into retirement, or they've come into retirement, and they're looking back and they're going, well, I'm glad that I'm here, but what has this all been worth? What have I been doing with my life and my time? And what am I supposed to do now because my identity was actually found in my vocation? And I, I'm actually feeling depression and anxiety, right? It, this is cross-generational, cross-generational. And then, that's not even to mention that there are some folks who, for any variety of reasons, they're, they're limited in what they're able to do, whether physically, relationally, emotionally, mentally. There's limitations, and they don't even have a chance to hit this ambiguous goal of what success is in order to be significant and in order to be impressive. Is this relating to anybody this morning? That feel, that nagging feeling of, I need to do more, I have to accomplish more, I've gotta get more out there, what am I doing, and what have I done? And this leaves us feeling empty on the inside. It leaves us in a state of utter exhaustion. Where like, we live in this cultural moment where you ask someone how they're doing, and they're like, busy. Like, I'm, not descri- I'm not asking you to like, I was just asking how you're doing, like how you feel, busy. Busy. Oh, yeah, I'm busy too. <laughs> I'm busy too. It's a badge of honor. It's an expectation in the culture, and it leaves us empty and exhausted. And trying to hit this vague, ever changing notion of success to be impressive, to have the followers, to get the likes, it leaves us with a feeling of hopelessness. Like, what is the point of all of this anyway? It just leaves me utterly exhausted. And so, what are we to do? Because most of us here are rather unimpressive. And if you think you're impressive, then we'll just put you with some people who are actually impressive, and then you won't feel impressive anymore. (laughs) Then we'll all be unimpressive. So what are we to do? I think that what Mary models for us actually speaks into this, in this moment for us. You see, like Mary, the invitation is to take our hope, both our temporal immediate hope and our eternal everlasting hope, and root them and anchor them in the person of Jesus. Who he is, what he has done, and what he says he will one day do. And this is what Mary's song is all about, is rooting her hope in God, and revealing that even before Gabriel showed up on the scene to give her this amazing message, her hope was already rooted and grounded in God. And what we see is that when we root our hope in Jesus, what happens is we recognize that I don't have to go out and be significant. The very fact that I am is significant. Why? Because I am made and you are made in God's image. Your very existence, you just being, has great significance. So let's just sit with that for a second. Just you being means that you have significance. Just take that in. There's no amount of striving, there's no amount of, of, of working, there's no amount of doing that you need to do. Just you existing means that you have significance. 
And what's more is that Jesus redefines what is impressive for us, as we'll see when we look at Mary here. What we see is that God actually sees her as impressive. Impressive despite the fact that she could live in a town and in a village where most people might not even know who she is. Because there's nothing impressive, humanly speaking, about her. Right? So what does it mean to be impressive in the eyes of God? Well, this song teaches us a thing or two about that. You see, what God values is character and what God values is humility. And the good news for you and for me is that as we follow Jesus, every single one of us has the opportunity to build on those two things, character and humility. Look at, look at verse 48 again. Mary says this, that God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. So his servant, she's actually talking about herself when she says this. And I love that she highlights the humble state. We already talked about that, right? Like she's acknowledging that I'm unimpressive, I'm insignificant, and yet you, God, you made everything and you see me in that insignificance. You see me in that unimpressiveness. And the angel, when Gabriel showed up, he says twice that Mary had found favor with God. And this isn't a long line of folks in the biblical story who found favor with God. Moses, Daniel, and on and on we could go, found favor with God. What does that mean? Does it mean that God was impressed with how hard they were trying? That God was impressed with all the things that they were pursuing? No, he was impressed with them because they were humble. They lived in dependence upon God. They weren't looking to live independently, but in dependence upon God. Isaiah 66, too, sums it up really well for us. This is God speaking, and he says, these are the ones that I look on with favor, those who are, there's our word, help me out, humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. It is amazing. This is what God is attracted to. This is what he values. And to tremble at his word, Mary does that so well here. To tremble at his word means someone who is reverent to God and displays that reverence by being obedient to what he has revealed in his word. To be contrite in spirit is to acknowledge that I have failed, I have sinned, and how I have done that is I have not loved God and I have not loved neighbor. And I'm actually remorseful over that, and I want to make that right. I want to correct that and be able to love God and love others as fully as I possibly can. And she says that God saw the humble state of his servant. I love this, I love this line because when we looked at Gabriel's interaction with Mary, what did we see? It ended with Mary in verse 38 of chapter 1 saying, I am the Lord's servant. Like, how, how crazy is that? This angel shows up and says that you're gonna conceive and bear a son who's gonna be from the line of David, who's gonna live and lead all the nation of Israel, but actually be the one who swings wide the door for the hope of all the nations. This is the one that you're gonna give birth to. <laughs> I mean, this... It's a crazy situation that she's in. And what, what's amazing about it is if we look at it from a human standpoint, she accepts this task, this call, knowing, how, I mean, she has to know that this is gonna put her in a scandalous situation because her and Joseph are engaged to be married, but they've not yet been married. And for a woman to become pregnant before she is married, according to the law, could actually result in her being stoned. So this is going to put her in a scandalous position and look at her response. Let it be so. 
not my will be done, but thy will be done. And this is such a contrast from Eve in the garden, right? Who saw the fruit, whose husband was right next to her, passively, idly standing by, watching this unfold. And Eve saw that the fruit was desirous and pleasing, and it was good for gaining wisdom, and she took it. She said, it's mine, I want it. And here's Mary, and she says, no, not what I want, but what you want, Lord, be done, so much so that I'm not just in agreement with it, I'm actually gonna be a vessel and a conduit through whom your kingdom comes. This is amazing. This is what it looks like to live in humble dependence upon God. It doesn't mean that we are constantly self-flagellating and going, oh, I'm just above dirt and I'm just, I'm not good enough. And no, 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 none of that. Nor is it the opposite where I'm so impressive and look at all the things that I've accomplished and look at the wealth that I have and look at the status that I bring to the table. No, because when we look at the cross of Jesus, we cannot hang our heads low, nor can we hold our heads high, but we fix our gaze on Jesus as he shows us who we are in him. And Mary's response is so appropriate. Let your will be done. Modeling for us what it looks like to live a life lived in obedience. And she says in verse 48, talking about her humble state, that despite her unimpressiveness, despite her insignificance, that God was mindful of her. And now this word mindful is really interesting because it actually means that God in upholding his promises revealed in all the Old Testament that he would eventually bring Messiah to open up wide his salvation to all the nations, that he would look upon his people that he has chosen, in this case, the nation of Israel, and that he would look upon them with favor, that despite their disobedience, he would still meet them and he would still save them. And despite their repeated again disobedience, he would see them and he would save them. He would uphold them. He would love them with immense care. This is what it means for God to be mindful of Mary, that his loving care of her exceeds anything that she could have wanted, anything that she could have Desired because he is good. And so the message for us this morning is that he is mindful of you. He is mindful of me. He is mindful of us. And he's looking for people and a community of people who are gonna walk with him in humble obedience just like Mary models for us here. So how does he demonstrate that he loves us? We look no further than the cross. We also look no further than the manger, that God himself would take on flesh and dwell in our midst. Come among us. Mary highlights this in verse 47. She says that her spirit rejoices in God, her savior. Now this is amazing. I, I don't know because we're, we're not told, but I'm not sure how much she's actually grasping of the gravity of what's about to happen here, but it seems that she's got a good understanding that the child that she is going to bear is more than just a normal average child. See, we get the impression here that she is situating this birth in light of the overarching story of the Bible, and she is praising God because of it, and she's recognizing that it's gonna be through this child that all the world will be saved. And now this, this, is, this is very significant for this passage and very significant for us. Because Mary is modeling for us 
the understanding that even though she's unimpressive, she's significant. And she's significant not just because she's made in God's image, but she's significant because she gets to participate in God's redemptive work. Just like you and I get to participate in that redemptive work today. In a, diff- in a different way, of course, right? So Mary displays as she's praising God, her Savior, and she goes through this. Look, she says in verse 51, God has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham, his descendants, forever. She is growing in her awareness and her understanding that God is up to the most important salvific work yet. And she's looking backwards to the Old Testament and she's going, look at where he saved us. He brought us out of Egypt and before he brought us out of slavery, he called a man named Abraham and he gave a promise to Abraham that it would be through Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed. Well, why did he have to give that blessing to Abraham? Because back in the garden, when Eve and Adam took of the fruit and they ate and sin entered into the world and fractured it and broke it and the curse came upon the land and upon the snake, God said in that moment, Genesis 3.15, that I will, despite all of this rebellion, I will uphold my promise to love you and to walk with you and I will one day raise up an offspring who will come and crush the head of that serpent. So fast forward. Abraham's called. From Abraham comes the 12 tribes of Israel. Through the nation of Israel, all the nations will be blessed because out of Israel will come Messiah. And here is Mary going, oh my goodness, this is what's happening. The one that we have been waiting for for all this time, it's finally here. It's finally arrived. And I actually get to participate in that kingdom. I get to participate in his goodness and what he is doing and how he's opening up wide the gate of salvation to all of the nations. She's connecting all of those dots right here. And what does that mean for us today? It means that we get to praise, we get to rejoice in God, our Savior, who here we are reading about in this moment is actually being formed in Mary's womb. In this moment that we're reading, as she's praising God, she's looking back on what he's done, she's looking forward to what he will do, and she's connecting those dots and in that moment going, I get to participate in that. So friends, he has made a way. He has rescued you. He has rescued me. He is not only mindful of you, he displays his loving care for you by making a way for you and for me to be back in relationship with our creator, our God, our master, our Lord. Not only does he make a way for us to have our sins taken, our debts paid, we, were, we owed him, he has now paid that for us, but now he has actually made us a new people. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we're a new creation in Jesus. And so Mary, situating herself, her personal story that is unimpressive, that is insignificant, in the larger story of cosmic history as laid out in God's word and recognizing I have significance because I'm made in his image. I have significance because my story overlaps with his grand overarching story from cosmic history from start to finish. And I get to participate in that salvific work. Oh, it's amazing. And what does she do? She just simply is faithful to the part that God invites her to play. 
He does the lifting, he does the saving, she participates, and it's the same for you and me today. And isn't it interesting that she says that all generations will remember her, they will call her blessed? Notice she doesn't say all generations will look at me and call me awesome. All generations will look at me and look at the works of my hands and look at what I've done. All generations will look at me and look at the fame and the wealth and the fortune that I had. Like, it's none of those things. She says they'll remember me as one word, blessed. Blessed. Blessed by God. Blessed by God because the one who's being formed in her womb was going to be the savior of the world. The one who was gonna be the savior of the world would swing wide, not just the gate for salvation, but to actually form a new people. That it would be through the one in her womb that new creation would come bursting forth in the midst of the old, or the present evil age, as the apostle Paul says. We see this in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. He says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And how did that kingdom come? It was through the one in her womb, through Jesus. New creation bursting forth. And now the invitation is for us today to participate in that new creation as God is forming us, his new people. And look at how God operates throughout history. I love this, Mary highlights it for us. These divine reversals where God takes everything that society expects and desires of people and turns it inside out and upside down. She says in verse 41, starting in verse 51, he's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud. He's brought down rulers from their thrones.